Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. This morning we're going to be in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, specifically today, verses 8 through 17. I want to make something uh, make you aware of something. Uh, we just installed this week a wonderful little device over here in our sound system area. So if you are one that has a problem hearing, uh, maybe more the talking and the sermon part when someone's up here, it just maybe sounds like some mumbling to you. We have four of these little uh, assisted hearing devices. So if you're sitting there, you're listening to announcements or prayers or the preaching especially, and, and maybe some of it's not clear to you and you need some help, and the, ear, the hearing aid might not be doing all the work, go ask Greg or whoever's in the sound booth for one of these. Uh, you just put the little hearing uh, device there on your ear, and you can adjust the volume up or down as much as you want, uh, and it'll just funnel what's coming through the sound system right into your ear. So if you want to hear me more, uh, that's there for you. Or you can just stay there and turn your hearing aid off and, and <laughs> not listen, but if if you need that, it's there for you, okay? There's four of them. I only know of one that's out today, so anytime you want to slip out and go over there to get one uh, before service, during the service, that's there for you. Also, something that I make available every week that I don't often bring attention to are the version notes. So if you uh, are an app user, I encourage you to have the physical hard copy of your scriptures there, and there's a pewback Bible there for you if you need it. But if you use the notes on version, you have the Bible app, go to the menu in the Bible app, and then go to events, and you should be able to scroll through or find where we are right now, Sunday morning sermon, June 4th, 2023, and you can follow along in those notes there. The question I want to start with this morning is, where is the power of God in the church? Where is the power of God in the church? And as many people as there are in the sanctuary this morning, there might be that many different answers as to what the power of God looks like in a local church. Is it the liveliness of our worship services, the passion that we express in our worship services? Is it the amount of activities that we can as a church put on for our members and for our community? Is it the stuff that accompanies what we do as a church? I'm afraid for much of modern Christianity, uh, when we mention the power of God in a church or in a church service specifically, we might automatically think of emotionalism, some sort of physical response maybe to the music or to the worship service, maybe the sensational nature of things that happen in the worship service that, that, that captivates our emotions and our imaginations and we leave and we think, man, God was there because of any experience that we had. Maybe. Some churches say the power of God is in the cleverness or the wit, the dynamism or the brevity of the preacher. And I tell you, this is the truth. There are some churches who actually think the power of God is found in the length of the preaching. Believe it or not, it's out there. I'm going to connect you with some of those people. 
Maybe it's in the style of the worship service, the instrumentation that she used, drums or no drums, a heavy bass, acoustic guitar versus electric guitar, a good horn line, a good orchestra, strings, organ. Maybe it's the newness of the songs that says that's the power of God to you. Maybe it's the age of the songs that says that's the power of God to you. Is it in the busyness of the church? So many churches think that their appeal and the broad range of programs that they can offer and the busyness that they are about as a church makes the power of God present in the church. So that the power of God in many churches becomes more of a question of what can we do to make this happen? What can we do to make the power of God come and do its work in our midst? How can we grow the church? How can we seek more conversions? How can we see more baptisms? How can we see more growth? How can we appeal more? How can we appeal to a broader audience? How can we be more relevant to our culture? What can we change? What can we compromise? How can we adapt to bring in the, quote, power of God into our church or into our church services? And so with mostly good motives, mostly good motives, with a desire to reach people, with a desire to see lost people saved, we actually sometimes run the risk of abandoning the power that God has given us in pursuit of other things to try to get to the power of God. What did Paul say was his foundation in Romans chapter 1, verse 1? He said, I'm called, I'm set apart, I'm chosen for the gospel of God. For the gospel of God. That's what captivated Paul. That's what captivated the early church. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we ask that question, what does the power of God look like in our church? What does the power of God look like in your life as an individual believer? What does the power of God look like for First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas? Look at Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. The Apostle Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Number one today in this passage, I want us to see our longing, and I hope that you see your longing. Simple question here, do you long to come to church? Do you long for Sunday school, for Bible study? Do you long to be there in your small group learning the Bible alongside other Christians? Do you long for, simply put, other believers? Do you long for that? 
Is that how you view this place? Is that how you view this time together? Is that how you view this people? Do you long for this? Do you long for them? I want you to see this morning that the power of God manifests itself in that way. In our longing for each other. In your longing for the body of Christ. And for Paul, he says there's a beautiful dynamic here. Look at verse 8. He says, first, I'm thankful. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. There's a thankfulness, a gratefulness there on the part of the Apostle Paul for these Roman Christians. Who, I remind you, he has never met. He has never been to the church at Rome yet. He might have met a few that may have been in other cities as he ministered. He may have met a few in his missionary journeys that wound up in Rome at that church. But in terms of going to that church, preaching and teaching there to them, he has never visited them. And yet he says, I'm thankful for you. Because, the last part of verse 8, your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Paul, having never met these Christians, knows their testimony. Is this a testimony he's hearing of of persecution and suffering and perhaps their steadfastness and faithfulness in the middle of it? Is the testimony that he hears about their generosity in giving as he did with the Macedonians who gave even out of their poverty? What is fueling this testimony? We don't know the details. All we know is that Paul, having never met them, has heard from them and that their great faith in whatever capacity is known throughout the world. Maybe we could chalk it up to something as simple as chapter 1, verse 5, when Paul says, I came to preach the obedience of faith. Maybe he simply heard of their obedience to the gospel, their coming to faith, and the fruit that they're now bearing in the gospel. Either way, we know that their faithfulness has produced Paul's gratefulness. Their faithfulness to Christ has produced this faithfulness in Paul so that he, having never met them, says, I thank God for you. Jarrett is here, as you know. I told you he's one of my former students, and I have many former students. One got married yesterday who is not pursuing full-time ministry, but I have some that are pursuing full-time ministry. And whether they are pursuing ministry or not, I see their growth in the Lord. I see their growth in the faith. And, of course, you with children who have grown up in the faith, or maybe you have served in ministry in some capacity and seen others go out from your ministry to serve, it causes you to rejoice, and you're thankful to see that growth and that calling in them. But Paul's joy here is for people whom he has never met, yet he knows their faith. Do you have faithful people in your life whose faith causes you to rejoice Maybe it's a parent or a grandparent or a friend or someone in your Sunday school class, your small group, someone you're, you're sitting next to today. Maybe it's your spouse or one of your children even whose faith causes you to rejoice. When you see them walking in truth, when you see them perhaps walking through hardships and trials, yet remaining steadfast and faithful in their faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. What encouragement and strength is, in there, is there in seeing others walking in their faith? But ask yourself this question, what about those who you don't even know? Maybe here in this room, you've never met some people in our congregation. Maybe in churches across our city, in our state. What about Christians across the world who you may never meet until glory? 
I want to encourage you to make use of ministries like the Voice of the Martyrs or missions uh, documents and apps that are put out by our own Southern Baptist Convention or any faithful gospel preaching missions organization that connects you with not just missionaries and church planners around the country and around the world, but people who are coming to faith in Christ. As you watch testimonies of people around the world coming to Christ who you have never met, but yet you can rejoice in their testimony and in their faith. People in other parts of the world who are severely persecuted and tortured and killed and imprisoned for their faith in Christ. What encouragement is there in that for you to see their faith and to know their example? Or is your faith this morning, in your opinion, merely a private individual matter. I want to tell you this morning that the Bible knows nothing about a private individual faith that is kept to oneself. Jesus saves you as an individual. You must come to him in personal repentance and faith for yourself, not on behalf of someone else and not someone else on behalf of you. It is personal. It is private. It is individual when you come to faith in Christ. But then you are incorporated into something bigger than yourself. So if you ever heard the old song, me and Jesus got our own thing going, you need to just erase that from your memory and say it's not just me and Jesus. It is supposed to be, according to Scripture, we and Jesus. We are in this thing together. And Paul says, my longing is to be with you. My longing, he says in verse 9, is to be with you. God is my witness, he says in verse 9, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at least succeed in coming to you. Paul calls God into the room as his witness. To say, as, with God as my witness, I long to be with you. This God to whom Paul is a slave, as he said in verse 1. This God who has set Paul apart for his gospel, according to verse 1. The gospel, chapter 1, verse 3, about his only son. It is that call of God on Paul's life that fuels Paul's love for the people of God. Pleading. Asking, begging God for him to allow him to go see them. I'm afraid so often some of us might plead with God not to have to be around his people. And we lift up every excuse imaginable on any given Sunday morning as to why we're not connected to a Sunday school class or a small group or why our attendance on Sunday morning worship service is so spotty and sporadic. Whereas a heart truly given to God in saving faith, a heart truly given to God in saving faith longs to be with God's people. We tend so often to think of being with other people, even believers. I know we think this way sometimes. We tend to think of being with other people, even believers, as give, 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 give. And so you say, I don't want to go to Sunday school. I don't want to go to small group. I don't want to go to Bible study because, haven't we said this? That's just asking too much. I don't know those people. Those people don't know me. I don't want anything to do with them. And that's just asking too much of me. How conceited is that of us? To think automatically that when we come to church, 
or when we think about Sunday school or small group or Bible study or youth group or whatever it is, how conceited of us to think that we're automatically the ones that are giving in that situation. Look at what Paul says starting in verse 11 here. I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Verse 12, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul understands his role as an apostle. Capital A, authority of Jesus, power of the Holy Spirit, apostle. He understands that authority. And that's why he says in verse 11, I want to come to you so that I may impart something to you. He knows his role, his authority, and his calling. Verse 12, but he also knows he isn't the only giver here. In longing for them, in longing to be with them, in his longing to minister to them, listen, Paul knows that he will also be encouraged by them. He will also be ministered to by them. Paul wishes to give, but he also knows that he will receive a blessing from being with God's people. Dan Doriani, one of the commentators I was reading preparing for this, said this, Blessed be the missionary who travels to distant lands and cultures, expecting both to give and to receive. Blessed be the pastor who expects to learn from his congregants. Blessed is the professor who takes notes on a student's questions and observations. Happy is the father who lets his children guide him. How arrogant and proud are we sometimes to picture ourselves as the giver in the situations we put ourselves in Sunday school small group church your workplace your family we're the only ones giving here and we have nothing to receive from those around us Paul knows that's not true he says I want to come give something to you but I also know that I will receive something from you it's also arrogant on the other end listen to think that you have nothing to offer the body of Christ Because in thinking that you have nothing to give and nothing to offer, you're saying that the power of the Holy Spirit that is within you, that has given you a gift to use for the body, you're saying that that is worth nothing. You're saying it's not worth your time, your effort, changing your schedule, amending your priorities. So either way we go here, we find ourselves in this situation of rejecting God's power, either to receive from his people and also to give to his people. We say in that that the body of Christ has nothing to offer us. Tony Merida in his commentary said, you need other believers and other believers need you. Pastors, Staff, deacons, teachers, committee members, leaders, all of us in the body of Christ here at First Baptist Church Dumas need each other. Now, I believe that I have been called into this position. You voted, and I trust God's sovereignty in calling me here to this, as well as Pastor Matt and Pastor Zane. And he has gifted us and anointed us for these particular tasks and callings, and we use them because we believe that in using them, we are, by God's power, giving something to the body of Christ. But don't think for a minute that Pastor Matt or myself or Pastor Zane don't think that we are also here to receive from you. 
You have spiritual gifts too. You have a calling and an anointing in the body of Christ for yourself to use, not just for everyone else in the pews, but for us too. Deacons, staff, pastors, leadership, everyone. You have something to offer too. Listen to how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. And then down in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one, so it is with Christ. You hear what Paul says? There's many gifts, many callings. Many ways in which to serve the body of Christ in the world, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And each one is central and unique and important to the body of Christ. Just as your body cannot operate 100% without all the parts operating together, so it is, Paul says, with the body of Christ. You have a part in that. You have something to offer. And I wonder if that's where your longing is. Paul says there in verse 11, I long to see you. That word long is not just a passing want. I wish I could see you, but, you know, alas, other things have happened. No, this word means a deep, straining desire. As a baby needs milk. As the psalmist says, the deer pants for the water. This is that kind of longing that we should have for other believers. And I wonder if that kind of longing describes you. I wonder if that kind of longing fills your heart on the Lord's Day morning when you wake up and prepare for church. Longing for this place, for these people to do this. And if not, what other desires and longings have taken its place? What other desires and longings are there in the place of that one that should be there if you know Christ? What has replaced this in your understanding of your identity? Where was Paul's identity? I'm a servant of God, set apart for the gospel, and because of that, I long to be with God's people. See, for Paul, Lord's Day worship and being with the body of Christ was not just a nice place or the nice show on Sunday morning that we get in and get out and move on with the rest of our lives and, and hope that it does something good for us and for our community. No, for Paul, this was his life. His focus, his attention, his drive, his passion was centered on the body of Christ. It was his obligation. And that leads us to our second point today, our Obligation. Look at what Paul says in verses 13 through 15. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul says in verse 13, I've often desired to come to you. But I've been prevented this far. That longing that he had to be with them fuels this desire to be there and to preach the gospel with them. But look at what he says in verse 13, how he describes this. 
I wanted to reap some harvest among you. I wanted to have some reward, some produce, some fruit from you in my ministry. Amongst who? Amongst you as well as from amongst the rest of the Gentiles. You know what Paul's saying there? I hope to come to Rome not only to reap a harvest among you believers in my preaching, but a harvest of unbelievers in my preaching. This is my obligation, he says in verse 14. Isn't that interesting? My reward, my harvest, what I hope to reap in verse 14 is described as an obligation. I hope to come to you to get a reward, and that reward comes in the way of an obligation. Literally, Paul is indebted to them. And you say, how can that be? He's never met them. He's never met these believers. He's never been to their church. How can he possibly owe them anything? What does he possibly owe them? How is he indebted to them? Well, it's not so much a debt to them as it is to God. Remember, God poured out his mercy and his grace on Paul, overflowed Paul with his grace and his mercy, and commissioned him then to declare it to others. As Tim Keller said, Paul owes people the gospel. And the harvest and the reward of his ministry is in the fulfilling of that obligation to give people the gospel. And Paul says in verse 14, it's universal in its scope, both Greeks and barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. You see what Paul is saying? Using those different categories, the gospel is for the rich and the poor. The gospel is for the educated and the uneducated. Paul says, from the most erudite in the Greco-Roman world to the poorest peasant slave to those beyond the empire who were considered barbarians. All humanity, according to Paul, stands before God on equal terms because of their sin under God's condemnation. No one is exempt from that judgment because of our sin. But the good news also extends, verse 5, he said it back in chapter 1, verse 5, to all nations. Literally, all peoples, not just the Jew, but the Gentile. Not just the Greek, but the Roman, the rich, the poor. The good news of the gospel is for everyone and for anyone. In verse 15, Paul says, I'm eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Don't forget it's for you Christians too. How many churches, and this was a big deal in church planting like 15, 10 years ago. I don't know so much anymore. But how many churches get bogged down in so-called demographic studies? And it was a big deal in church planting a while ago, not just to get to know the community, which is wise but to have a, quote, target audience. And you would hear church plants and church planters say, well, we're here to reach young families. We're here to reach young people. We're here to reach old people. We're here to reach singles. As if the gospel was supposed to be divvied out in portions to these individual target groups. As if this was some sort of marketing scheme that the church should go on to try to find some desired, quote, demographic. No. The gospel is for all people 
with no caveats. The church is here to proclaim the good news of the gospel and to see God unite in a body of Christ, in a family, people from every walk of life. Dan Doriani again says, Churches who love their neighbors will want to touch all the people in their area, even the barbaric and the foolish. Those who we would consider barbaric and foolish. Paul's passion for God. His service to God as his servant overflows in his passion for God's gospel. And that overflows in a passion for God's people and for all people. I want us to notice here in this section that Paul's primary desire is not to come to Rome to perform deeds of mercy ministry. Mercy ministries are important. And what I mean by that is as we meet people's physical needs, or we meet people's felt needs, physical, mental, emotional, whatever it is, in giving things to the community and to people and to the world. Now, that will come later, and Paul will, will say this is important for us to do those things, but that is not Paul's first obligation. He doesn't say, I want to come to you first and perform these deeds so that you might have this bridge to the gospel later. No, I want to come first and foremost to preach the gospel. And then we can talk about needs and wants and felt needs after that. That's coming, but Paul says, my first obligation is to preach the gospel. And in verse 15, notice that again, Paul wanted to preach the gospel to believers too. How often do you think about that as as believers, most of us today? That the, the preaching of the word, the preaching of the gospel is not just for unbelievers, And when you hear the gospel repeated week in and week out, hopefully in my preaching or whoever's preaching from this pulpit, the gospel of Jesus again and again and again and again, and you are tempted to think, this is not for me anymore. I'm saved. I know Jesus. I don't need this anymore. Remove all those thoughts from your head. Because you as a believer, as a Christian that's been saved 5, 10, 15, 20, 60 years, however long you've known the Lord, you never outgrow your need for the gospel. It is both the starting point and the ending point of your faith. And it is everything in between. You as believers need the gospel, not just every Lord's Day. You need it every waking moment of your life. And so Paul wanted to preach the gospel to them too. I want to remind you this morning, church, that if we're passionate for God, if we claim to be passionate for God, we are going to be passionate for his message. We are going to be passionate for his gospel. And if we're passionate for God and his gospel, we are going to be passionate to preach that gospel for ourselves, verse 15, and for anyone and everyone else whom the Lord calls to himself, verse 14. Every person in Dumas, Texas, every person in the United States, every person in the world. Listen, and if that is not your passion, you must ask yourself if you, in fact, have God's power. If that is not your passion, you must ask yourself, do I belong to God? 
Because to belong to God is to be his servant for his gospel, with his passion for his people and for the world to hear that gospel. And then you must ask yourself, if God is not my master and God is not my Lord and that is not my passion, who or what is? Because something else is. Perhaps you're a believer today and you know the Lord. You have known that passion at some point. But maybe it's faded with time and you find yourself, as Paul says in verse 16, ashamed of the gospel. Brings us to our last point today, our confidence. Look at verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith forth faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Ours is a society of misplaced hope. Ours is a society of misplaced certainty, of misplaced confidence, of misplaced surety. Here we are on June 4th in the self-proclaimed beginning of Pride Month. When every form of sexual sin and sexual deviance and sexual immorality is put on parade, not just literally in our cities, but by every single corporation who wants to maintain relevance in this society. Because we're in a culture who has based identity and certainty and confidence on things like sexuality and gender as if your whole personhood revolves around that aspect of your personhood. And so in our quest for identity and our quest for certainty and our quest for confidence, we are looking anywhere and everywhere for purpose, power, meaning, and identity except the one place it is found. And that is in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth of the word of God that says not to celebrate sin, but to condemn sin so that we might know salvation in Christ. And it's easy for us to look out there and say, yes, that's for them. That's for the people in the parade. That's for the people in those clubs. That's for the people in those events. But this is for you, too. Because just as much as they have rejected confidence in God and his word for their identity, we Christians often also turn to other places for our identity and our purpose and our meaning. And sometimes churches find themselves with misdirected pastors and misdirected staff seeking alternative means to do that which God has called us to do. You might have heard somebody in the past say that um, the message never changes, but the methods do. It was a big mantra in the church growth phase that we don't necessarily change the gospel. We don't change the Bible. We don't change our confessions of faith. We just change the methods and how we do it. When in fact the Bible says that God has given the church both its message, the gospel... And he has also given us the method, which is the preaching or the proclamation of that gospel. And yet so many churches and pastors would say, well, I think we just have a better plan. I just think we have a better strategy than God. 
And pastors and churches look at this time called preaching, and they say, who has time for that? It's dry, it's boring, it's long. What does Paul say in verse 16? I am not ashamed of the gospel. Literally, the gospel is not misplaced hope. The gospel is not misplaced confidence. I don't have to be embarrassed of the gospel. For when suffering and trial and hardship and death itself comes and the rug is removed from underneath us, what will there be to stand on for those who know Jesus except the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so hope in the gospel and hope in gospel preaching will not be misplaced. It might seem like that to some people. But I'll remind you who those people are. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. The message of the cross, the preaching of this gospel, the preaching of this word is foolishness to the lost. But it is the power of God for salvation for those who believe. Paul says, I have confidence in the gospel as God's power to save anyone and everyone with no exceptions who will come to Jesus in faith. And I want to remind you about this word power this morning in verse 16. That the gospel does not just provide the opportunity for salvation. The gospel does not just extend an invitation to salvation. The gospel isn't just the equation that we use to get to salvation Paul says the gospel is the power of God to save. Robert Mounts in his commentary said the gospel is not simply a display of power. Do you see that? As if we're just kind of showing what God has done. And here's God's power. Do what you will with it. No. The gospel is the effective operation of God's power leading to salvation. Let me say it another way that Paul would have known, Isaiah 55, 11, The word of God will not return to him void, but it will do exactly that which God sends it out to do. So with confidence, with certainty, Paul trusts the gospel for himself, And then he wields that same gospel as a sword with the power and the precision of God's spirit. A sword wielded not as a means of destruction, verse 17, but salvation. In that this sword delivers what God requires of us. Look at what Paul says in verse 17. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Given, for it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul's quoting here from Habakkuk 2 verse 4, which the prophet pronouncing judgment on God's people says that the proud are puffed up and they they think they have it all figured out on their own and in their own strength and in their own power and their own wickedness. But Habakkuk says from the Lord, the righteous though shall live by his faith. In Habakkuk's Habakkuk's pronunciation of judgment and destruction and doom and death, the question would obviously be, 
well, who can live? If that kind of judgment and condemnation is coming, who can survive that kind of judgment on unrighteousness? And Habakkuk says it's simple. If you want to survive God's judgment on unrighteousness, what do you need to be? Righteous. And for Habakkuk and Paul, they understand the only way to receive that righteousness is by faith. Habakkuk says it's the proud person who's puffed up in his own strength. But the righteous live by faith. And Paul will go on to say it's the proud person who thinks that they can attain righteousness for themselves by the works of the law. Paul says, but that won't save you. Only faith will save you in the one who has done it for you. And so Paul says salvation, he says, begins with faith and it ends with faith. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. That means, listen, salvation begins with faith and it ends in faith. With any of your works added in, no. With any of your self-righteousness added in, no. The salvation from beginning to end, justification, sanctification, glorification is by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ alone, apart from your good works. It is not merited. It is not earned. It is not bought. Look at that verb in verse 17 again. What is it? It is revealed. And how do I get it? If God has revealed it and put it out there in the gospel, how do I receive it? By faith. If you want to survive God's judgment on unrighteousness, if you would live through the judgment, if you would stand before the throne of God, secure and saved and destined for eternal life, you must then be righteous. And the bad news is you're not. That righteousness must be revealed to you. And then once it is revealed in the gospel of Jesus and what he has done, you must appropriate it to yourself by faith alone in the one who was righteous on your behalf, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is the sum and the summit of God's power, Paul says. You want to know where it is? The gospel of Jesus Christ. It's God's power for you, for salvation, for forgiveness of sins, for receiving God's righteousness for your salvation. It's God's power for everyone, the educated, the uneducated, the rich, the poor, male, female, black, Hispanic, white, Asian, fat, skinny, tall and short. It's for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. The gospel is God's power for the church. This is our mission. This is our method. This is our source. This is where the power is. So I say, let them have their entertainment-driven worship services. I say, let them have their motivational, inspirational preachers with their 10 steps to be a better you. Let them have them watered-down gospel services and their watered-down gospel sermons and their watered-down gospel, which is compromised and adulterated and mitigated to suit the world. Let them have every worldly, man-made scheme to do church. Give me the pure, unadulterated, unfiltered, uncompromised gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give me the preaching of the word. Give me the power of the Holy Spirit to save the vilest sinner. Your child, 
your family member, your parent, your loved one, your friend, whoever it is that is far from God today. You say, how do I know God has the power to do it? When you pray for that lost loved one, that lost friend, how do you know that God has the power to do it? How do you know God has the power to save them? He saved you, didn't he? Paul says he saved me. I know he can save anyone. Tell me that old, old story of Jesus and his love. For in that old, oft-forgotten, oft-hated, offensive, old-fashioned story is the very power of God. That is our confidence as believers. That is our confidence as a church. I want you to hear me today. That is my confidence as your pastor. This. This is the power of God. So as you ask yourself, as we did at the beginning, where is the power of God to be found in the church? It's to be found in our longing to be with and serve one another. It's to be found in our obligation to preach the gospel to one another and to the world. And it's in our confidence in the gospel to accomplish God's work. Because the power of God is the gospel of God. Our God and our Father, we love you. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which speaks life and light. Where there is nothing but death and darkness. And God, we live in a world, even today, reveling in and celebrating every kind of sin, marching in parades that glorify that which denigrates them as humans, denigrates society, perverts our minds and our hearts. We look at them and we beg for your mercy. We beg that even now, in the midst of those so-called celebrations, you would pierce hearts and minds with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But God, we confess that just as they so often look elsewhere for their identity, we do too. We as Christians fail to see the power of God and the call of God here in the word of God and the gospel. And so even for us believers here today, convict us by the power of your Holy Spirit that we might once again reorient our lives and our priorities and our schedules and our passions to align with this calling, a longing for the people of God, an obligation to proclaim the gospel of God, and a reliance on the gospel of God as the power of God. God, unite us in this together today as a church that we might know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. It's in his name we pray and ask. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806 935-5604. We'll see you next time.